morning, Haynes Creek. It is good to be with you today. As he said, my name is Travis. I'm the pastor here. If it is your first time, I just want to say a special welcome to you. We are thrilled and excited that you are here worshiping with us today. And we really do mean that. Those aren't just words that we say. Like, I really do truly appreciate all of you being here, especially if it is your first time. And so if it is your first time, uh, we want to shower you with appreciation. One of the ways we want to do that is by handing you a free gift on your way out. So if you wouldn't mind, please stop by our table right up there as you go back out in the hallway. We have a free gift we'd love to put in your hands. Uh, there's also a little card that says welcome on it. If you wouldn't mind just taking a minute, filling that out, those come back to me and it just gives me a chance to reach out with an email or a phone call and just say thank you and just again let you know how much we do appreciate that. So again, thanks for being here and we're going to continue on in our series going verse by verse through the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, don't own a Bible, we also have Bibles on that table. Please take one of those as our gift to you. Uh, we'd love for you to have one. Uh, but if not, you can follow along on the screen right here. We'll have all the verses up there. So Philippians chapter 1, we're going to pick up where we left off uh, with verse 12. And we're going to carry it through verse 18 today. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And, and when we finished last week, we finished kind of looking at Paul's introductory comments to his letter to the Philippians. So he takes the first 11 verses and just kind of sets the table, right? He gives his introduction, says who he is, why he's writing, who he's writing to. He takes a moment to really thank the Philippians. Like he just showers them with gratitude because these people, these Philippians, this Philippian church are people that Paul deeply cares about. And, and you see that it's a mutual love and, and compassion and, and heart towards one another with Paul and the Philippians. I mean, there truly is this deep level of community and friendship that Paul and these Philippian believers have. So you just see that in the opening verses here. And then he ends it with, with a prayer, which we looked at last week. So if you weren't here last week, you can catch up, podcast, YouTube, all that good stuff to look at Paul's prayer. So we're going to continue on today. And this is where we really start to get into the, the bulk of the letter, the meat of the letter today, starting in verse 12. And Paul's going to take a moment, we're going to see this this week and in our passage next week, Paul just kind of lets the Philippians know where his mind is at, where he's focused, what he's, what he's driving towards, what he's thinking in his current circumstances. So we're going to dig into that in a second. So Philippians chapter 1, if you're already there, great. If not, as you're turning there, uh, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I got a, a letter in the mail that some of us have received, and some, I think, when we see it, it's kind of like, oh, Really? I got a jury duty summons. Anybody have, has gotten jury duty before? You guys know what I'm feeling? Only a couple of y'all. We're like, man, y'all, others really must be walking with Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's great. Can win if you hear this. We love jury duty. Jury duty is amazing. Um, love it. So I got the jury duty summons, and my week for jury duty was this past week. So I've been kind of like, okay, what am I going to do with this? I got to kind of figure out my schedule, rearrange some things if I have to. So I was trying to figure all that out. And for where I live in Gwinnett County, you have to kind of check in the night before because you really only have to go in for one day or for one trial. That's kind of the rule that they have. So you have to check in every night and see, okay, is this the day that I have to go in? Well, so over the weekend, I got the notice that I don't have to go in on Monday. I was like, blessings, amen, praise God. Then on Monday, I got the notice, hey, you don't have to come in on Tuesday. I'm like, this is amazing. So I've gotten called for jury duties twice already in the 14 years that I've lived there, and each time I haven't had to go in at all. So here I am thinking it's Tuesday. I'm like, oh, this is, this is it. I'm going to have another week where I don't actually have to go in. This is amazing. Um, and then I got Tuesday afternoon. I'm taking Livy to her cheer practice, and I get the notification, you got to come in tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, really? i got to be there at 8. Our kids get on the bus at like 8.15. Myla's got preschool on Wednesday. Wednesday is the day that my wife works, so she's a teacher. She's out of pocket on Wednesdays. Like, she's not helping. She's not taking off, can't take off just because I happen to have jury duty. Like, that's not how it works, right? So I've got to figure this out. So I'm calling my mom. I'm like, Mom, can you watch? Can you come early? Can you help out, get the kids on the bus, get my little preschool, like all those good things? Can you be here in the afternoon just in case I'm stuck there all day? Like, you have no idea what you're walking into, right? When you go there, you just, they tell you, plan to be here all day. I'm like, okay, cool. So my mom's like, yeah, I can come help out. So she gets there early, and I leave at like 7.30. I go to the courthouse. I get set up, right? I got my backpack full of work stuff. I got my computer out, and I just, you know, I'm hanging out there. I'm, I'm camping out. I'm prepared to be there all day. So before that, I actually, uh, on, on Tuesday night, I had to explain to my kids, like, hey, I'm not going to be here in the morning. Nana's coming over, and she's going to help get you on the bus. And of course, they're seven, so they're like, why? What's going on? 
So here I am having to explain jury duty to my seven-year-olds. Just if you're a parent of young kids, like go home and explain jury duty to them and let me know how it goes because this did not go very well with my kids. So I'm trying to explain to them. I'm like, okay, daddy's not going to be here. I got to go early and we got to do this. So I'm trying to explain the entire legal system here in America. Like we have a judge and when somebody gets arrested, they have a trial and there's lawyers and here's what the lawyers do. And then there's this jury that decides if somebody is guilty or innocent and what punishment is going to happen as a result of that, right? So that's the responsibility of the jury. So they're hearing this and they're just like totally confused. Now, thankfully, we had spent some time earlier that week as we go through this little Bible study with them, talking about Romans 8.1, where it says, therefore, in Christ, no, there is no condemnation for those in Christ. So I'd explain no condemnation. Again, go home and explain that to your kids. Let me know how that goes. That's a big word, right? So we've been talking about guilty and innocent, and, and we're guilty in our sin, and, and Jesus makes us innocent through faith in him. So I kind of bring that into this discussion of the jury, like we decided this person is innocent or guilty. So they hear me explain this twice now, and they're like, Dad, we don't want you to go to jail. I'm like, oh, goodness. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what's happening. I appreciate it. I don't, like, I don't know what they thought I did. That's like, now I have to go to jail with jury. Like, that's not at all how it works. So kind of like, let me re-explain this again. So it helped a little bit. They kind of understood a little bit at the end. But then at the end of this, like right before bedtime, Livy looks at me and she goes, Dad, I don't want you to be on the jury. I don't want you to get the job. That's what she kept calling. I don't want you to get that job. I'm like, well, sweetie, there's literally nothing I can do about that, okay? Like, if I get picked, I get picked, and it just, it is what it is. That's the rules. That's how it works. Like, I don't want you to get the job. So, like, that's all they were focused on. That's all they were thinking of. The, the morning, they woke up in the morning, and both of them are like, Dad, we don't want you to get the job. Don't get the job. Don't get the job. I'm like, guys, I can't control that, all right? Daddy's just going to go, and whatever happens is what's going to happen. And they were just, like, so little worried with their little seven-year-old hearts. They were just concerned that something bad was going to happen, no matter how many times I explained it. Like, that's all they were thinking of. So I get there, and again, they tell us, they walk through the whole process, and like, hey, plan to be here all day. We got some trials starting, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to put some names up on the screen. If your name is up there, you have to go over to this section, and then we'll take you into the courtroom. So that's like, you know, we're about 8.30, they tell us this. So they come back at 9, and they put the names up. And it's just like, you know, like 15 names per screen. It's just kind of like sliding. And I'm just like glued to the TV like, because you know, now I'm like, my kids are worried. And like, I don't want to be honest. Like, I don't really want to be on a jury. That's not what I had planned for the week, right? So that's not what I, that's not what I wanted to spend my time doing. So I'm looking at this and now I'm thinking with like, along with the kids, like, don't get the job, don't get the job, don't get the job. <laughs> and so I'm seeing it. It's like the first page, no name. First, second page, no name. Third page, no name. Fourth page, I'm like, surely it's going to have Travis Dean's up there. Fourth, no name, y'all, no name. So the first 48 go and sit over there, and I'm looking at the room. I'm like, there's about 48 left of us. Like, there's, if there's a second trial happening today, we're all going. Like, there's no more, like, waiting around. Like, we're it, all right? We are in the room, and what, like, 12 of us or however many are going to be on this thing. So I'm just waiting for them to come back and be like, hey, here's the next trial. The rest of y'all, you're going in this courtroom, right? So they come back, and they're like, if your name wasn't on the screen, you're done for the day. I was like, wow. Praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord from whom all blessings flow, right? Amen, amen. So they, they, get, they send us home, and I'm done for the day. This is like an hour and a half. Like, we were worried. My kids and I were worried. The night before, the whole morning, we're stressing just for an hour and a half, right? And that's usually how it works. Like, you worry, and nothing really happens. So I'm texting Kendra. I'm like, hey, I'm done for the day. Call my mom. I'm like, hey, you're free to go. I got the kids the rest of the day. And I'm like, hey, by the way, can you tell Zane and Livy that dad didn't get the job, so they're not worried anymore. So anyways, I got home, but again, they were just like so consumed with it. So they got home, and they're like, dad, you didn't get the job. Tell us all about it. Like, you just wanted to hear all about it. And that's what brings us to Philippians chapter 12. And now you're like, what in the world is happening? I know, I got you. Just walk with me. It'll be okay. So we get to Philippians chapter 12, and again, Paul is opening up to the Philippians where his mind is at, where his focus is. And this is where he tells the Philippians very clearly, man, I have this one singular focus, this one thing that I am dedicated to, and it doesn't matter where I am, what's going on, this is what my life is going towards. And he lays that out clearly here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. It says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel." The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? 
only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. So Paul's mindset, where he's at, what he's describing to the Philippians is, is nothing's changed for Paul. Sure, he's in prison. Sure, his ministry context has changed, but where his life is dedicated, what he is driven by, what he is focused on, has not wavered one bit. Remember what we talked about at the beginning of Philippians. One of the reasons Paul is writing Philippians is because the Philippians reached out to him first. They reached out to him first, and they were checking on Paul. Because, again, they're tight. They're good friends. They're worried about Paul. He's in this Roman prison. They're worried about him. So they're checking on, Paul, how are you doing? And his response is this. He's, I'm rejoicing because Christ is proclaimed. Because that's, that's Paul's singular drive, singular focus from the moment he put his life, his faith in Jesus, and Jesus radically changed his life, right? Paul goes from a murderer, persecutor, hating all the things of Jesus, to now Jesus has captured his heart, radically saved him, and, and has sent him out to bring the gospel to everybody. And that's Paul's life. From the moment he got saved until now, towards the end of his life, his life has one singular focus, and that is to advance the gospel. Just like he says here, what has happened to him has actually advanced the gospel because that's what Paul cares about. That's what he's focused on. That's what he's driven towards. That's where his mind is at. That's what Paul cares about most is advancing the gospel. And, and we've already seen that the Philippians have that same mindset. This is why Paul can say that they're true partners in the gospel. That the Philippians have been with him from the very beginning until now. They have continued the work of Paul. They're all about advancing the gospel. And here's what I would say for us today. That's what we're to be about too. That's what we're to be about too. If you are a believer, if you have put your faith in Jesus, the purpose of our life, what Jesus has called each one of us to is this, is to advance the gospel. This is what our lives are to be marked by. This is what we are to be focused and driven by is this idea of, of advancing the gospel of Jesus. I and mean, we see this with Jesus, right? Before he ascends into heaven, one of his final things that he says to his believers, to his followers, his disciples, is what we call the Great Commission, right? We see this at the end of Matthew 28. What does he tell his disciples? Go and make disciples of all nations. I'm sending you out into the world to make more disciples, more people who believe and love Jesus, and then he reiterates that in Acts 1.8, literally right before he ascends into heaven. What does he say? What does he tell his followers? You are my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's what Jesus has called us to. He has called us, his followers, to have this singular focus of advancing the gospel, of making disciples of all nations, of being his witness everywhere across the globe. This is what we are called to, believer. This is what we're to do. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Would we agree with that? And I think the vast majority of believers would say yes. I think most of us would say, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I think we would say yes, right? The Great Commission, that's a good thing. Telling people about Jesus, that's a good thing. Do we want more believers in this world? Yes, that's a good thing. Like, yes, we want that. Usually we get stuck on the next question, which is, Okay, what does that look like? If that's true, if I'm really supposed to advance the gospel with my life, if that is to be my singular focus and drive, great, but what does that look like? And that's often where we get stuck. So I want to help us get unstuck from that place today. So I'm going to assume one thing, and, and maybe that's dangerous, and you know, people advise you not to assume things, but I'm going to do that. I'm going to have a presupposition today that those of us in here who claim the name of Jesus agree that we are to dedicate our lives to sharing the gospel, to making disciples, to being Jesus' witness. I'm, I'm just going to assume that, that we're all on the same page there. So I'm not going to spend some time trying to convince you otherwise. If you're not there yet, I'm going to pray for you. We'll talk about that later. If you want to have more conversations, please let me know. But I'm going to assume that we're, we're at the point where we say, yes, that's a good thing, but how? Yes, but how, right? So let's talk about that. And, and in order to help us kind of get unstuck from that and to kind of move forward with this call, I want us to, to walk through four questions that are raised here in the text about advancing the gospel. And I think answering these four questions will at least give us some help and, 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 and give us some, some steps to take and help us kind of take the progress that the Lord is leading us to. So let's walk through these, these four questions. If you're taking notes, write these down. Question number one, the first thing that we have to answer when we talk about advancing the gospel in the name of Jesus is this. Where does God have me? 
Where does God have me? Look at how this starts out again in verse 12. Paul writes, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, okay, let's stop there. What has happened to Paul? What has happened to Paul? When we look at the life of Paul, we see this laid out for us in in the book of Acts. And we spent a year here uh, in the book of Acts. So you can go back and find those sermons and and all that if you want to catch up. But we we dug deep into the book of Acts and, and saw exactly what happened to Paul. And we see, so, so Paul gets saved in Acts chapter 9, and then we see him again pop up in Acts chapter 13, where he is part of this incredible movement of God in the city of Antioch, and the Antioch leaders send Paul out, right? They send Paul and Barnabas out on their first missionary journey. So we see this sending out in Acts chapter 13, and, and in that first missionary journey, he goes through all of like modern-day Asia Minor and eventually makes his way back to Antioch. And then he gets sent out again, right? He gets sent out again on his second missionary journey. And this is where we see uh, the church in Philippi getting planted, right? Paul goes back through Asia Minor, and then he crosses over into Greece, hangs out all over Greece, right? He's in Philippi, he's in Corinth, he's in Athens. He, he makes his way eventually to Ephesus for a little bit, and then he comes back to Antioch. And then guess what happens? He gets sent out again, right? He goes out on his third missionary journey, and he goes back through all those places. He goes back to all those places, but this time when he comes back, he doesn't go through Antioch and stay in Antioch. No, no, he comes to Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem, and that's where things shift for Paul, right? He's faced opposition all throughout his missionary journeys, but he's been able to kind of get about it and and go back to his work eventually, right? Not to belittle the things that he went through. It was really bad, but he didn't get stuck in prison. But here in Jerusalem, the, the, the people, the Jews in Jerusalem, and they hate Paul. They can't stand him, and they want him dead. So they plot to kill him. Thankfully, the Romans put a stop to that. But in that, Paul gets arrested. Now, Paul didn't do anything wrong, right? We know he's innocent from looking at what happened. Like, he didn't do anything deserving of that. But now he's stuck in prison. In Jerusalem, he gets moved to Caesarea, and he's there for two years. Two years he's in prison. And he has trial after trial after trial, and nothing and then he appeals to Caesar, right? He's a Roman citizen. Any Roman citizen can appeal to be heard by Caesar, can have their case heard by Caesar, the most powerful guy in the world at this moment. So Paul appeals to Caesar, and then we see at the end of Acts, Paul is shipped out to Rome and eventually makes his way to Rome where he is under what we would consider house arrest. He's in some kind of home, some shape or form, we don't really know, but in that he is literally chained to a Roman guard the entire time he's in Rome. He is chained, in, essentially under house arrest in prison in Rome. That's where Paul finds himself. He's in prison, chained to a guard in Rome. By the way, which is like the epicenter of the world right now, like this is where, where all culture is happening is in Rome, but at the same time, it's also the epicenter of, of all sorts of evil and sin, right? Uh, Rome is not some uh, completely moral place, right? We know from history that it is immoral. And there's all sorts of sin, and it's the center of pagan worship. And at this point, they had started worshiping Caesar, the guy in charge. They were worshiping him as God. And, and Rome is just this culture filled with sin and completely opposed to the ways of Jesus. That's where Paul is. That's where God has him. And we know that God has him here. But look, jump down to verse 16. It says, these preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. If you circle or underline things in your Bible, underline, highlight, circle that word appointed. Or maybe your translation says put there or, or has been placed there or set here. That's the literal translation of that word is just put here. But it's, but it's put there by somebody else. You are put somewhere by somebody. That's what the translation means. So God has put Paul exactly where he is. This is God's hand. This is God's doing. Paul is in prison in Rome because of God. God has placed them there. He's placed them there, and he's placed them there for a purpose, and that purpose is to advance the gospel. And this is exactly what Paul does. I mean, try to think about this. What does he say here in verse 13? So he's, he's, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. Yes, I'm in Rome. Yes, I'm in prison. Yes, my ministry has changed, but guess what? God's still using me. He's still advancing the gospel through my circumstances. Verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I'm in Christ. So that, that phrase, the imperial guard, that refers to the praetorian Roman soldiers. I mean, these guys are like the top of the top Roman soldiers at this time. So much so that they, they are the ones that are used as like Caesar's personal bodyguards, right? Like these guys are, again, the top of the top soldiers. And that's who is guarding Paul. And again, he's literally chained to one of these soldiers 24-7. 24-7, he's got this Roman soldier planted right next to him. And what does Paul do with those guys? 
tells them the gospel. He tells them why he's here. And look, Paul can't tell his story of how he ended up in Rome without talking about Jesus, right? Not that he would anyways. It's just not possible. So Paul is telling these guys his story. He's telling them the gospel. He's telling them all about Jesus. And then when that soldier's done with his shift and the next one comes in, guess what Paul's doing? Talking to that guy. Like there was this constant rotation of soldiers every few hours. So when Paul says the whole Praetorian Guard, the whole Imperial Guard, he probably means the whole, all of them. He's probably seen all of these guys at one point or another, and he's telling them all about Jesus. And then he says, not only them, everyone else, everyone else. Like literally what that means is everybody that Paul has come in contact to, come in contact with in Rome, he's telling them the gospel. He's talking about Jesus to everybody he comes in contact with. And the Lord is using that to spread the good news of Jesus all over Rome, all over the epicenter of everything at this time. Jesus is just getting proclaimed all over the place. And people are putting their faith in Jesus. I mean, we, we can flip over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 22. This is the second to last verse in, in the book of Philippians. It, it, Paul writes this. The saints, that those are believers, the believers send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. People in Caesar's household are getting saved because of what God is doing through Paul and the believers in Rome. Caesar's own household are putting their faith in Jesus. Like, just imagine that. Again, this is the time where Caesar is worshipped as God. Caesar's own household is looking at him going, no, you're not God. Jesus is God. I'm not worshipping you anymore. I'm worshipping Jesus. Y'all, that is wild. That is wild. Like, just try to wrap your minds about how that is playing out and what is happening here. Like, that's how God is advancing the gospel. All the while, Paul is chained up in a house to a Roman soldier 24-7. And yet God is still advancing the gospel. Paul's circumstances didn't affect that. Paul's location, the culture that he found himself in, did not prevent the gospel from going out. Paul's circumstances, location, culture didn't prevent God from using him and all of that to save people. Y'all, that is incredible. That is awesome. And God wants to do the same thing with us. He wants to do the same thing with us. Where he has us is for a reason. What you have going on in your life, who you're around, the place where you are, all of that God is using for a purpose. And part of that purpose, a big part of that purpose, is to advance the gospel. This is what he wants to do. But how often do we let these things prohibit us? How often do we let our, our, our location, you know, where we work or where we live or, or whatever prevent us from sharing? So, which obviously you, don't, you don't know the people that I work with. You don't know how far gone they are. Man, they are just wicked sinners. You don't know. You don't know the, the people that I live around. Man, they don't care anything about Jesus. Or maybe you're like, man, I, where God has me is I live on a house where there's nobody around me, right? Like, if I'm going to tell the gospel to my neighbor, that means I'm telling the gospel to the cow. And Travis, look, he already believes, okay? He believes in Jesus, but we, we, we let our location prevent us from walking in the purpose that God has for us. Or, or our circumstances, right? Well, Travis, you don't know what I have going on in my life. You know, maybe once I feel more settled. You know, maybe once my, my kids are older, I'll have more time. Here's what I'm learning about the, the older the kids get. You have no time. No time. Your margin when you have kids is gone forever, right? Like, that's where we're at. Okay? You just need to embrace that. Embrace it, live in it, and trust the Lord with it, right? So there, there's not, that's not going to happen. Or once I, you know, once I learn more about Jesus, Travis, you know, I just, I don't feel comfortable talking about Jesus yet. I just, I need to learn more. I need to learn more. So I'm not going to do it. Like, we let our circumstances prevent us from sharing. Or, or we, let, we let the culture that we're in. And y'all, look, we, just like Rome, we are in a godless culture right now. Like, everything that you're seeing when, when, when people who study religion, non-Christian, Christian, whatever, they're all saying the same thing right now. The Western religious mindset right now is seeing the sharpest and greatest spiritual decline we've ever seen before. Now, again, I say the West, that we're talking like Europe and, and this, the North America states, like the Western culture, because that's not happening in places like Africa or Latin America or Asia. Like, it's booming over there. But here in the West, we are seeing the greatest and sharpest spiritual decline we've ever seen. People aren't coming to church even if they used to come to church, they're not coming back to church now. Like, there's a whole bunch of different factors going on. But that's the culture we are in. That is the culture we are in. And I don't know if you guys watch the news lately. Like, our culture is going further and further away from Jesus every chance we get. We are getting further and further away from any sort of cultural, Christian, moral norm you want to put out there that we used to have. Like, that's gone. That's gone. And it's only getting worse. So we have two responses to that. We can look at the culture, probably much like Paul looked at it, and I'm like, man, these people got no hope. There are no chance they are putting their faith in Jesus. It is too far gone, Travis. 
this culture is too far gone, so let's just forget about that and just kind of huddle with our own little Christians over here in this little world, and we're just going to stay in our little Christian bubble, and we're just going to let the culture go to hell because that's what they want anyway, so, you know, whatever. They'll just figure that out. It is what it is at this point. Like, we can just come, become so resigned to this idea, well, man, the culture's gone. It's going too far. Like, just throw our hands up and go, okay, well, it doesn't mean anything. Like, we don't have to do anything about it. No, I don't think that's the response that we're to have. But we, we let, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but we let our culture prevent us from sharing the gospel. See, Paul saw his location, his circumstances, where he was, the culture he was in, is all being in the hands of God and directed by God to be used for this purpose, to advance the gospel. And I firmly believe God is doing the same with us and wants to do the same with us. Paul says this in Acts 17 when he's preaching to the people in Athens. He says, from one man, God has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God has appointed the times and the boundaries of where we live. Us being believers in this cultural moment that we are in is not by accident. God has placed each one of us here for a purpose. Where you live, where you work, the people you are around, the people you interact with on a regular basis is not by accident. God has a purpose. He has you where you are for a reason, and a big part of that reason is to advance the gospel. So when we talk about advancing the gospel, we start with, well, okay, where does God have me? Where does he want me to start? That's where. He has you where you are for a reason. All right, so the next question, next question. What do I say? What do I say? So we talked about where, where am I? Where does God have me? Next one, what do I say? And this is one of the most frequent questions I hear as a pastor, right? Like we can get to the point where like, yes, share the gospel, Travis. Yes, talk to people about Jesus. Yes, I agree with that. I just don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to talk about Jesus. I don't know. Like, tell me what to say. What, what do I say? So I hear this question a lot. And it's usually like, you know, if I, if I just knew what to say, well, then I talk about Jesus all the time. If I just felt comfortable in saying something and knowing, if I just, add, give me a plan, Travis, give me a plan, and I'll execute that plan, and I'll do it. Well, here's the thing. I think, I think honestly, if we were honest with ourselves, I think we use that as a crutch a little bit more than we should, because here's the truth. There is no shortage of resources out there really awesome, good ones that will tell you exactly what to say, that will give you a plan in your conversations. I've even recommended some of those resources. I've even said, I'll buy them for you if you want. There's no shortage. Man, there, you could Google all sorts of sermons of better preachers than I am about this very subject. There's no shortage of opportunity to learn what to say. So it's not so much that we don't know what to say. It, it's usually more I don't know if I should say anything. I don't really want to say anything because it's awkward and it's uncomfortable and it's weird and they might be like, you're a crazy person. Yeah, they might be. I totally get all that. Like, hear me. I understand that. I feel that too, right? Even as a pastor, like, it is awkward. It is weird talking to your neighbor about Jesus. I fully understand that. Fully understand that. But I think, I think what we see here with Paul, I think he gives us some helpful tools to know kind of big ideas what to talk about and what we're called to do. What does God expect me to do when it comes to telling people about Jesus and advancing the gospel? So what do we, what do we see here? Well, the first one, we see Paul, he's just telling his story, right? In verses 12 and 13, he's just telling anybody that he's coming in contact with about what's going on in his life. He's just telling his story. And we see this from Paul over and over and over again. When he gets up in front of these crowds to talk about Jesus in the book of Acts, what's he doing? He's sharing his story. He's like, y'all, here's what I was doing. Here's what I was before Jesus. Jesus literally spoke to me on the road to Damascus, saw him, appeared to me, put my faith in him, and here's what's going. Here, here's where I'm at now, right? Here's what's going on now. He's just telling his story. That's all God wants from us is just to tell our story. What is Jesus doing in our lives right now? How has he saved us? How are we seeing God work in our lives? He just wants us to share that and talk about that. That's his expectation. That's what he wants. It's just sharing our story. And then we see this incredible thing happen in verse 14. As Paul is doing that, we see him say this, Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. So what's, what's crazy and awesome about this is these other believers in Rome are seeing Paul, who's literally chained up 24-7 for preaching the gospel. They see Paul in prison for sharing the gospel, and they're like, cool, I'm going to share it even more. <laughs> 
oh yeah, you're going to rest Paul? You're going to have to rest all of us because we're all doing this now. Like it just created this confidence in the Lord and assurance that this is what he's called them to do. And man, it's just exploding over Rome. Again, this, this godless city so far away from Jesus, we're seeing this gospel explosion happening in the mid-first century. Like this is just incredible. This is awesome. And they're just, what are they doing? What, what are they doing? They're just talking about Jesus, right? We see this over again. What are they preaching? Verse 14, they're preaching the word. Verse 14, or verse 15, they're preaching Christ. Verse 16, Paul says that he, he's here to give a defense for the gospel. That word defense is where we get our word apologetics from, which just means explaining what you believe and why you believe it. Just talking about Jesus and why you believe in Jesus. That's what that, that's what that means. Verse 17, he says, proclaim Christ. Again, in verse 18, proclaim Christ again. So what, are we, what, what does God want us to talk about? What does he want us to say? Jesus. He wants us to talk about Jesus. When we talk to other people, when we're trying to advance the gospel, he wants us to talk about Jesus and his word. Just point people to Jesus. Talk about Jesus. How is Jesus working in your life right now? How has Jesus saved you? Why are you a believer? Why have you put your faith in Jesus? This is all we're supposed to do. We talk about Jesus. We weave Jesus into our everyday conversations. Right? We just try to insert Jesus. Oh, we're talking about this struggle or parenting or whatever it is, man. There's no shortage of opportunities where there's discontentment in the world, in those people that we're talking to, to insert Jesus into that as our solution because he is. He is, right? How am I able to get through parenting? How am I able to have a good marriage? How am I ha- able to handle my finances? That's all because of Jesus. That's all because of him. How am I able to have love for those in my life that I may not get along with, that I may not ne- get, agree with? Jesus. How am I able to extend grace towards those in my life? Jesus. All of this is because of Jesus, and we just need to shine a light on that and just find ways to weave him in to our everyday conversations. That's how we talk about Jesus. That's how we bring Jesus along with us. That's how we advance the gospel. Jesus doesn't want us to have a bunch of eloquence, right? We're not, we're not called to have all the answers. We're not told you better say everything perfectly man sometimes it's just this jumble of word vomit that comes out and i'm no stranger to that either right just because i'm a pastor doesn't mean i'm free from that and guess what the holy spirit can still use that the expectation is not that you have all the answers or you say everything perfectly the expectation is that we just talk about jesus just like we would anything else that's important valuable something that we love i mean just think of all the things that we love talking about right jesus should be right up there at the top of that list weave Jesus into our everyday conversations. Look, here's the reality. People are searching. Maybe they can't put that word to it. Maybe they can't describe that. But in the, in, in the way our culture is right now, there's a lot of despair. There's a lot of discontentment. There are people searching. And what we have learned over the last few years is everything in this world that we have put our hope in, politics, political leaders, policy changes, finances, health, comfort, safety, all of those things are fleeting. And we've seen that over and over and over again. If we put our hope in the things of this world, it will disappoint us. It will let us down. Your neighbors are feeling that. Your coworkers are feeling that. Jesus is the answer. We know that. They need to know that. We need to point them to Jesus. Will some reject and laugh us off and say we're crazy and then they never want to talk to us? Maybe, maybe. But maybe not. Maybe not. Let's not presume upon the Lord, right? Let's not just jump ahead and say, well, surely you're not going to do this. No, we don't know. He just wants us to talk about Jesus. So again, it's, not, it's not so much what you say. It's just that you're willing to say something about Jesus. Just step through that little crack in the window, that little open door that somebody gives you. Just burst through with Jesus, right? Like that's all that he asks us to do. All right, so... Where does God have me? What do I say? Number three, what are my motives? What are my motives? So it's really cool, right? Like we talked about, this really cool gospel moment is happening in Rome. As Paul's preaching the gospel, other believers are preaching the gospel. Like all Christians everywhere that Paul's saying, there's a ton of people preaching Jesus all throughout Rome. But Paul also tells us that some of those who are preaching are doing so with not the best motives, right? There, there are some concern. Yes, they're preaching Jesus, but there's some concern here, right? Like, look what he says here in verse 15. He says, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others 
proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. So Paul says that there, there are some preaching here with false motives. And what's interesting, what's interesting is we are led to believe that these are believers, these are Christians, and they are preaching the truth. They're preaching the actual gospel. Like, Paul doesn't shy away from calling people out as heretics. He's like, if they were preaching a false gospel, he would have that in here. If they weren't truly believers, they were sheep or wolves in sheep clothing, like, Paul would call them out. He would say, man, don't trust these. Stay away from these guys. They're false teachers. They're preaching a false gospel. He's done that over and over again. So because he hasn't, what we're led to believe is these must be believers, and they must be preaching the truth, but what Paul tells us is they're doing it with the wrong heart. Yes, they're serving Jesus. Yes, they're advancing the gospel, but man, their heart, their heart's not right. Their ultimate goal isn't to see God glorified in the gospel advance. What Paul tells us is their ultimate goal is to hurt Paul, to cause him trouble of some kind. Now, look, we don't know what that means. Our best guess is that these guys, as they're preaching truth, they're taking every opportunity they can to tear Paul down. And we see that over and over again in Paul's ministry, that there were a lot of people out there that wanted to uh, downgrade his authority to, not, to say he's not an apostle, you can't trust him, don't follow him, don't listen to him. Like, we see that over and over again. So best guess is these guys are doing something like that. Yes, they're preaching Jesus, but they're also taking shots at Paul. They're saying, yes, Jesus is awesome, believe in Jesus, but don't trust Paul. Don't listen to that guy. Look at him, he's in prison. Don't listen to him, or else you're going to be in prison, right? Like, it could be any number of things like that. So what's the warning here? What's the warning here? The warning is that, that we can have the right content, but our hearts can be in the wrong place. And yes, Paul says he rejoices that no matter what Jesus is being preached, and that's awesome, but we should be you know, concerned about these, these people's hearts. That's not a good place to be. So we gotta be aware of that with our, with our own selves. We can have the right content. We can be saying the right things, but our hearts can be in the wrong place. We can be serving Jesus, yes, but doing so out of what Paul says, envy and rivalry and selfish ambition and, and not sincerely. Not seeking the glorification of Jesus, but seeking the glorification of ourselves. So how, how, how do we do that? I think we do that in a variety of different ways. One of the ways is, is just making ministry all about me, right? Yes, I'll serve Jesus, but I'm going to do it on my own terms. I'm going to do it on my own terms. I'm going to do it in the way that I want to. There's no thought to any sort of submission to leadership and, and church and Jesus and all that. No, it's all about me. Sure, Travis, I'll serve, but I'm going to do it my way. And don't get in my way. Don't tell me I'm doing things wrong. Don't try to direct me or, or say anything about that because I'm, I'm just going to do whatever I'm going to do. We've got the wrong heart. Our motives are wrong. Or, or a lot of times what we'll do is we use our influence to tear others down. Yes, we're going to talk about truth. Yes, we're going to talk about Jesus but we're also going to tear this other person down. Yes, you should listen to Jesus, but oh, by the way, when we're talking about not listening, don't listen to that person. Nope, don't like them. Don't listen to that pastor. Don't listen to that church. Nope, they, I, they, they do things the wrong way. We do things the right way here. Don't listen to anybody else, right? We take shots at other people. We tear other pastors and leaders and, and Christians down. And we need to be careful of that because what we're doing at that point is those fingers that we're pointing at everybody else doing the wrong things, now that's pointing back at us. Now we're doing the very thing that we're accusing other people of doing. We're saying, yes, they're trying to follow Jesus, but they're doing it in the wrong way. Well, now I'm doing that the wrong way because I'm gossiping. I'm tearing others down. Should we warn of false doctrine and false teachings? Yes. That's not what I'm saying. Paul is telling us here, man, you can say the right things and do it with the wrong heart. And that's what we need to be concerned about. And it's really easy to point our fingers at everybody else, but not examine our own hearts. So we need to examine ourselves. We need to ask ourselves, am I serving Jesus? Am I preaching Jesus? Am I trying to follow Jesus, but doing so with the wrong heart, doing so with the wrong motives? All right, number four. Number four. We'll end here. Well, I say that. We're not really going to end here. I got one more question after this. But number four, what matters most? What matters most? So we need to ask ourselves, where does God have me? What do I say when I talk to people about Jesus? What are my hearts? What, what is my heart like? What is my motivation when serving Jesus? And the last question I need to ask myself, what matters most? What matters most? Look at how Paul ends this discussion. It's just, it, it's incredible to see where his mind is at with all that he has going on. He says, what does it matter? 
only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. And that, that's, one of, that's one of our key words in Philippians. So if you're underlining or highlight things in your Bible, every time we see joy or rejoice, underline it, circle it, whatever. That's an that's a important word for us. So Paul's saying, look, no matter what's going on, no matter what these other people are doing, no matter what I, where I'm at, whatever, like what matters most is Christ is proclaimed, and in that I can rejoice. Again, Paul is innocent, and he's in prison, and he's tied to this Roman guard 24-7. His whole ministry, outlook, and goals, and mission, like it's completely different than what he set out thinking was going to happen. God has him in a completely different place than he would have planned on his own. And yet, what is Paul doing? He's rejoicing. I don't know about y'all, but I, I would like to think that I have that mindset, but I also think that there would be times where I'd be like, oh, man, here I am in prison. I didn't do anything wrong. By the way, guys, hey, I'm innocent. By the way, y'all, tell, tell your boss I'm innocent, all right? Tell, I was like, oh, Lord, I'm, I'm innocent of all these charges. Here I am in this godless city. You have me here. What are you doing? What, like, I could be so much more effective if you had me out somewhere else. And yet here I am, Lord. Why have you forsaken me? How dare you, God? Right? Like, we could, we could so easily get in that mindset. And yet Paul is saying, no, I'm rejoicing. I'm rejoicing in the Lord because Christ is being proclaimed, because the gospel is advancing. That's what Paul cares about most. That's what Paul cares about most. The motives and ultimate goals of Paul's opponents, they don't matter. Paul's circumstances, where he's at in life, doesn't matter. These things do not matter. The change in his ministry and context and goals and aspirations and all of that does not matter. What matters most to Paul is advancing the gospel. That's what matters most. That's what Paul cares about most. Paul has devoted his life to Jesus and his kingdom and advancing the gospel. This is what we're called to dedicate our lives to as well. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided to you. What does God ask of us? To seek his kingdom, to live for his kingdom, to dedicate our lives to his kingdom. And if we're living in the kingdom of God, we are called to advance the kingdom of God. This is what we are to dedicate our lives to pursuing the kingdom of God, advancing the gospel, advancing the mission. A theologian, Bible scholar, pastor, all these things, D.A. Carson, if you heard of D.A. Carson, incredible man of the Lord, brilliant, brilliant mind. He writes this about Paul in this moment. He says this, Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. As Christians, we are called upon to put the advance of the gospel at the very center of our aspirations. What are your aspirations? To make money? To get married? To travel? To see your grandchildren grow up? To find a new job? To retire early? None of these is inadmissible. None is to be despised. The question is whether these aspirations become so devouring that the Christian's central aspiration is squeezed to the periphery or choked out of existence entirely. Let me read that last sentence again. Let this sink down into our hearts. The question is whether these aspirations become so devouring that the Christian's central aspiration is squeezed to the periphery or choked out of existence entirely. What are the things that we allow in our lives to squeeze out our central aspiration, to choke out the main thing that God has called us to, the advancement of his gospel, making disciples of all nations, being his witnesses to the ends of the earth? What are these things that we desire more than that? And as Dave Carson said, like, some of these things are really good, right? Like, like our jobs, our career, retirement, savings, family, our hobbies. Like, these are all, can be really good things, right? And it's not that we're like, you know, you can't make any money. You can't have a job. You can't have any hobbies. No free time for you. Like, that's not, that's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying. But how often do we elevate those things, even the good things in our life, how often do we elevate those above Jesus? 
truly ask ourselves, what matters most to me? What am I giving my life to? What am I dedicating my life to? Is it all about my job? Is it all about my career? Is it all about my kids and my family? Is it all about my hobbies or whatever it is? Again, whatever we have going on. Is it all about those things? Have we allowed those things to squeeze out my dedication to the gospel, to choke out seeking first his kingdom? And look, it might not even be, it might not even be that we, we are desiring these things more than Jesus. It could just be that we've numbed ourselves to the gospel, to the mission of God. We've just numbed ourselves and bought into this idea that, that man, no one cares. No one cares. Everybody's heard the gospel. Everybody I know, at least in my life, has heard the gospel. Whether they believe or not, I don't know, but they've heard it. So well, I've got nothing else to do. They, they've all heard it. It doesn't matter. Or, or maybe, like Travis, I don't, I don't know any non-believers. Like, all, all I know is Christians. So, okay, sorry. Don't know what to tell you. Don't know any non-believers. And even if I did, it wouldn't matter. Like, if I tell them about Jesus, they don't care. They're not going to listen. They don't want to know Jesus. You know, God, God's going to do it without me. God's going to do it without me. Oh, and by the way, the church, hey, that's what the church is here for. It's your job to evangelize. It's your job to evangelize. Yes, it is, but it's, it's all of ours. It's all of us, right? It's all of our jobs. We just, we've allowed these other things to numb us to the mission of God. What matters most to us? What matters most? I told you I had, I had one last question for you before we, we close up today, and, and that's this. How is God currently using you to advance the gospel? How is God currently using you and your life and your circumstances, the people that you're around, how is he currently using you to advance the gospel? Is he using you? Are we living in such a way? Are, are we dedicated and pursuing the gospel to, to allow God to work in our lives and, and use us to his purpose? How is God currently using you to advance the gospel? And again, it's easy to buy into this mindset that, man, like, this is just, Travis, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree, man. Like, nobody cares. Nobody cares. We're just in this desert of spirituality. And nobody wants anything to do with Jesus anyways. Like, it does not matter. There's a place in, in the nation of, of Chile that uh, is often called the, the driest place on earth. It's, it's the Atacama Desert. Probably not pronouncing that correctly, but Atacama Desert. You can look it up. It's, it's, it's the driest, if not the driest, and it's one of the driest places on earth. Just to kind of help us understand that they get less than half an inch of rainfall per year there. Less than half an inch. The average for the state of Georgia is 45 to 50 inches of rainfall per year. This place is less than half an inch. This is a barren wasteland. Nothing is there. Nothing is living there. Nothing can survive there. It is nothing but desert. But what is incredible is underneath the surface of the driest place on earth, there are 200, over 200 species of wildflowers just chilling under the surface. And there's this incredible phenomenon that happens when they get a little bit more rain than usual. It's called the desert bloom. They have a little bit more rain, and then all of a sudden, hundreds of wildflowers are popping up everywhere. This barren wasteland now covered in wildflowers. I think too often, we see where God has us. We see our location. We see what we have going on, the people that we're talking to, the people that we're around as just this barren wasteland. That God's got no fruit here. He's not at work here. He's certainly not going to use me. He's not going to change the people in my life. We're in this barren desert. And I'm just telling y'all, I refuse to believe that. I refuse to believe that God has called us to cultivate a desert. I know all the stats. I know what they're saying. I know that they're telling us that Christianity is at the bottom. It's the sharpest decline we've ever seen. I know all of that. I refuse to believe that God has done. I refuse to believe that he's called us to cultivate a desert. I think he's got a garden underneath this for us to cultivate. And so here's what our job is. Our job is to sow the seed. Our job is to throw the gospel anywhere and everywhere we go. That's our job. We're to throw out the seed and then we're to pray for rain. We're to pray for rain and we're to pray for God to bring the growth. 
We're not here to cultivate a desert. We're here to cultivate a garden. So what do we do in the season? We cast the seed. We sow the seed. We send the gospel. We, we bring the gospel everywhere and to anyone we come in contact with. We bring the gospel and we pray for rain. We pray for that garden to bloom up. And y'all, I'm telling you, I believe he will do it. I believe he will. We are not called to cultivate a desert. We're called to cultivate a garden. So let's sow, let's work, let's till, let's be ready for the harvest. And let's pray for rain. Can you pray for us? Jesus, I, I pray, Lord, for each of us, for those of us who claim the name of Jesus, I pray for us to, to grab hold of this, Lord. To live in a way that we actually believe that we're called to advance the gospel, that we actually believe that you have people here that you want to save. It may seem like a desert, Lord, but you've got a garden of growth and fruit underneath, and you've called us to work the ground, to till the soil, to plow the fields with the gospel in the name of Jesus. Lord, would we do that? No matter what we have going on, no matter where you have us, no matter what's going on, Lord, would we advance the gospel? Would we live as Paul says, no matter what, only that Christ is proclaimed. Lord, I pray for each of us in, in this time that we have of worship and response through communion. Or for those of us who have claimed the name of Jesus, would you use this as an opportunity to recenter our hearts and our lives and our desires on you? Lord, would you lead us in the areas that we need to walk in repentance of? Lord, would you, would you give us more and more grace as we try and we fail and we let other things come into our lives and lead us astray? Lord, would you, would you shower us with your grace? Would we wake up to new mercies every day, Lord? And you promise to do that. Lord, would you lead us to a deeper faith and trust in you, Jesus? So believer in the room, as you are ready, as you prepare your hearts, you can go to either side of the room. We take the bread, we eat, and we drink, and we remember our good God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he has saved us. He has made us new. He has forgiven us all of our sins. He's given us more love, more grace, more mercy, more forgiveness than we could ever comprehend. And he's called us to spread that message everywhere we so Jesus, we thank you, we praise you, we lift high your name today. It's your name we pray.